This is the Secret Library Podcast. I'm Caroline Donahue. As a lifelong book lover, I've been hanging out with books as long as I can remember. Here on the show, we're going inside the world of books and learning what's involved in going from brilliant idea to finished manuscript and what it takes to get it out in the world. You'll hear from authors, publishers, editors, and all kinds of professionals whose work brings you what you read every day. The Secret Library Podcast is sponsored by Muse Monthly, a subscription box for literature and tea lovers. Get a brand new novel custom paired with a full box or tin of tea on your doorstep every month. Visit musemonthly.com and use the code SECRET00, all one word in all caps, for 10% off your subscription. Welcome again to The Secret Library. I'm so excited. Today we have Sarah Selecki on with us. She is a dual citizen of Canada and the United States. I'm really jealous of people with dual citizenship, I must admit. Um, She grew up in southern Indiana and northern Ontario and got her MFA in creative writing from the University of British Columbia. Her writing has appeared in top Canadian magazines and quarterlies such as The Walrus, the new quarterly L Canada and the Journey Prize anthology, among many others. She's a writer and a teacher. She's been showing people how to write mindfully since 2001, when she ran her first creative writing workshop out of her living room in Victoria, British Columbia. She's an an alumna of the Hummer School for Writers and the Banff Center. She graduated from the University of British Columbia with an MFA in creative writing. Her book, This Cake is for the Party, it's her first book, is a short story collection about people who want love. It was published in Canada in 2010, and it was published in the U.S. in 2012. The New York Times called the story sparkling, unfussy, and fresh, and the Globe and Mail wrote compelling, clever, and exceptionally crafted. This Cake really delivers. It was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and shortlisted for the Commonwealth Prize for first best book. I'm sorry, yes, best first book and longlisted for the Frank O'Connor Short Story Award. She was named Best New Writer in 2010 by CBC, and this cake is now on required reading lists in several schools, including McGill and Trent University. She's the founder of Story is a State of Mind, the school, and the Story Intensive, a live four-month course. Um, We'll talk about details about that later. And she's a Virgo, which I'm really excited about, and a vegan. She lives with her husband in a restored barn, oh my God, so cool, in Prince Edward County, Ontario. So before we even get into anything, when's your birthday? Uh, It's September 17th. Why do you ask? Because mine's August 30th, and I'm also a Virgo. (laughs) I'm so not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Virgo party. Um, So I'm so thrilled you're here, Sarah. And um, Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm really excited to chat. So we've talked a lot on the show about kind of the the portion of the book process that happens after the book is written, like getting Mm. the book out there. Do you go with self-publishing? Do you publish with a small press? Do you publish with a big press? You know, all of Mm. those parts of the process. But I think the thing that we haven't yet talked about, which I really wanted to have you on to talk about is the process of beginning and where. Oh good. I'm hoping that you weren't going to ask me about that process. You're like, no, no, no. Don't worry. That's like, not... I can talk to you about the other stuff. No, right. no, no, no. I really wanted to talk about the beginnings and having, being a graduate myself of the story intensive, um, I know how good you are at getting writing out of people. Um, Thank you. And a lot of my clients are sort of like, oh, I don't know. How am I going to get this story out? Or where's it going to come from? Or how am I going to do it? So I think we wanted to go back to the very, very beginning. So what do you think about where a story comes from? 
Yeah. Um, I, I know that, I know that chomping, like all my writers, like a lot of people who enter the story intensive or who take the story course are really chomping to get it published or get whatever that means or get it out there or even just get it finished, you know, and have it just have the goal is not really about the source of or finding, finding and communing with or finding any kind of intimacy with the source of their ideas at all. So it's a great question to start with. And it really is what I'm most obsessed with Mm -hmm. Um, or obsessed isn't the right word in love with. Let's Mm. just say it's like what I'm, it's what I'm doing this for. And I think that I think different writers come at it different ways. Um, I know personally I have sort of a, an, an emotional question that's usually tied to a character or two characters. Usually there's like a person and a feeling that's attached to that person that, that, that is the source of an idea or a story for me. Um, usually sometimes it's, sometimes it's a line of dialogue and I know, um, a lot of writers actually start with, with concepts, um, or places or, um, you know, even just like an image that they just can't shake, like some kind of float, like a floating image of an object or a place or a landscape that is the thing that starts. But any way that you slice it, it's this, it's this feeling that is at once yours, but not yours. It's like, it feels for me, the way I understand, the way I feel it and understand it is like, it feels like this. (sighs) If it feels like, um, a connection to source to something that I'm like, like if there's like a a magnet, (laughs) if I'm a magnet and it's the iron filings or, or I'm the iron filings and it's the magnet more, there's like a feeling of connection or connectivity to an image or thought an emotion, an idea. And there feels like this, this power or this force field that connects me to it, but it is not of the real world. It's of something different. So I sometimes call it source. Um, but that might get a little too spiritual for some writers even, <laughs> but that's where, that's where I leave it. Like, I don't know. It's very mysterious. It's like, it is and always will be mysterious and it's mystery. It's like a mysterious, it's a very mysterious place, which is why I think I'm so in love with it and why I keep coming back to it and why I care so much more about connecting to that source than I do about the business of publishing, which, you know, much to the chagrin of my students. <laughs> and when, when they get, when they feel all connected and they feel all in love and they're like swimming in it and they come to me and they're like, now, how do you hook me up with where I'm going to put this? That I feel like I'm just not as interested in it. Um, that's mm. all logistics and it's totally something you can figure out later. But the real mystery and magic and the, the love, it's like, how do you feel connected to that source and keep that connection going once you start bringing this thing that doesn't exist into a world into paper, you know, into paper and pen, into something, and into language, really. How do you bring that into language and what's the relationship that source has with language and how do you fit in? And all of that mysterious stuff is where is where I light up. Oh, yeah. That just sounds delicious as you're talking about it. <laughs> I think it almost feels to me like a little tiny match, you know, and then and then how do you keep feeding it? Does it have that feeling at all to you? Yes, very much. Yes. Like, he, like, what is fire? Think about it. What the yeah. heck? What is it? Oh, and, yeah. but, but aren't you just like, it, we're so drawn to it. It's yes, that's really, that's a wonderful metaphor. Yeah. It's like a spark and then to a little flame. And then how do you keep, what do you keep feeding it in order to make it more about the fire and less about the fuel? Ooh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's, that's a great way to think about it. I, I think, yeah, because I think it is, we do know that it's mysterious and yet it shows up. And so I think that you can kind of talk about really practical aspects of writing. And maybe that's why people are so attracted to publishing because it is like, okay, here are your choices. Here are the advantages and disadvantages of this. And you can get your mind around that, but there's some certainty. It's like doable, even though it's like hard, it's so hard and confusing perhaps at least there's like some certainty to it that is knowable. But yeah, this is a total mystery. So how do you, like, where do you find your most available to that pull or that magnetic pull? Or like, where do you find your matches? Hmm. Um, also, so timely for that question to come to me right now. <laughs> because I've had such a busy summer. And it's been really difficult to find that connection and to find that spark. And it's because I find it most readily... Um, in times of nothingness. So mm. white space, like, um, connect, quiet for, for me, it's quite when I have enough, um, comfortable solitude built into my days, um, then it comes. And the way my life has been this year, like 2016 has been such a whopper of a year, uh, for me personally, just with being flung around, like moving is one and just, you know, life, life, life has been very busy, (laughs) um, busier than normal for me. So I have found that chunking away periods of time, like two weeks here and there when I can just to dive deep is really just about finding the solitude, the comfortable solitude so that I can reconnect to that source. But when I'm when I'm um, in a more balanced place, like when, when life has a little bit more equilibrium and when I can create a little bit more equilibrium and routine, that balanced place happens more every day. That's where I, that's why I teach a writing practice. That's why I teach my students, you know, 10 minutes a day, every day. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be like, you don't have to go out on a two week writing retreat in order to feel that connection. Although that certainly helps. But if you can dip in, and, and do nothing for 10 minutes a day, the, the ideas sort of naturally bubble up. You feel connected. And then when you feel connected and you are more receptive, um, the fire can find you. I think, I think the, the, the trick is not feeling like um, other things in life that you have to uh, hustle to make it happen. It's not, it's not that kind of a hustle. It's mm-hmm. like an anti-hustle, you know, it's like, <laughs> like my writing comes not from forcing, not from doing, it's from not doing. And that feels like right now, especially in this space and time that we find ourselves in, I think it's the not doing that makes it so very difficult and so difficult for writers who know that they, they want to write to feel um, like they are permitted to answer that call because what it means doing is shutting off so much. It means turning, you know, turning all the switches off so that you can be receptive. Um, it's time. It's making time, in other words. And, you know, any, I mean, I, I know that your clients and my writers probably all would agree that it's uh, making time is the number one question. Yeah. And that is that is the answer. It's making time. I it's making time. It's making time. And I think being allowed to make time, because I think our culture is so addicted to doing. Yes. That the first question anyone has about how am I going to work on this writing project or how am I going to do it? It's like, what am I going to do? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. they want a checklist or they want to, 
Yeah. They want to, okay, give me the assignment. Like, let me let yeah. me get into it. And I think there are practices that you certainly have shared that help <laughs> with that. But if you're just chock-a-block and you're, you're just slammed, then it's very difficult for your head to handle it. It is. And it's really, you know, my exercises, I mean, even back in the day before, before, you know, any of this digital stuff, like I was, Natalie Goldberg was one of my first teachers and she, she used to do this too. We always had to, writers always had, I think Hemingway had to do it, like way back, like Mm -hmm. Aristotle probably had, like writers always had to trick themselves, um, to create the space while the active mind wants to wants the checklist. Like I think that's human. I don't think that's a 21st century thing. I think that's just our minds are really active and they want it's it's particularly piquant right now, I think mm. um with everything going on like I think that our active minds are so supercharged and super active that these practices are even more beneficial or even more useful. But the key of the that practice like what I try to teach is a trick. It's here are some checkboxes for you. Like here's here's an exercise that gives you some checkboxes. So that part of your mind is immediately gratified. Like here's what I do. But the trick is, pardon me, the trick is really giving that part of your brain something to do so the other part of your brain can relax and receive. So it's a receptivity trick. It's it's a and together with practice, which is the repetitive continual um letting your body and mind know what the feeling is every day of sitting down and receiving something and writing it down. That's just like, that's the body and mind practice. Um, it's really helpful training takes a, you know, a week or so of maybe two weeks of just reminding your body and mind to be in the same place at the same time to receive. But the writing exercises, like the exercises themselves are, are tricks to, keep that active part of your mind engaged and feeling really useful, which it likes to feel, um, while letting the, the creative part of your mind wander completely freely. So it puts the exercises, the, the lessons and the teaching of, of Stories of State of Mind or the story course is really all about giving your, putting the two parts in, together in sync. So they're working together. So the logical is working while the imaginative is doing what it does best. So you're, so it's, they work in tandem and then there's a little bit more ease. It's a little bit easier and way more fun because everybody gets what they want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've got to give that part of the brain a job. It's like, you do. It feels like it's the part of the brain that wants to edit while you're writing. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we got to get this thing all polished up. So we might as well be efficient yeah. and, and this Can't sentence could be better. And, and I Can't think, yeah, they have to be separate, right? You can't do both they have at the to same be time. Separate. It's really it's making your life so much harder and and you know I would never I would I'm looking as I'm talking to you right now, I'm looking at my other desk. This is my work desk and then I have my writing desk in this little room. <laughs> and I'm looking right now at at the pages, the manuscript of a novel that um it's a first draft now that I wrote and I wrote all of that manuscript in 1000 or 2000 word bursts at most at you know 1 to 2 hours a day over the course of a year and a half and never rereading any of it cuz i oh, would never wow. knowing me i would never 
I'm a Virgo. Yeah. <laughs> I like things to be just so. Had I l- allowed myself to reread what I'd written every day, I would never have finished. I would never get through it. I just know I wouldn't have. So what I'm looking at is like a really imperfect, really imperfect finished first draft. And um, that is way more fun and kind for my eyes to look at than a perfect concept that I can't get out because I'm perfecting it as I go. It's yeah. just it's just so unkind to to make to make your writing do that. I really suggest writers not reread what they've written for some time afterwards after writing it because you can't look at it with any sense. You can't assess that with any with any. You just don't have access. You don't have access to whether it's good or not. You never really have access to whether your own writing is good or not. Anyway, there is no good or not good. You only can tell what it feels like when you're doing it. Um, so yeah, I that part of that part of the brain, um, my logical part of the brain, I set to work doing counting the words, counting the time. That's how I that's how I wrote. It's like here's what you're gonna do, logical brain. You're gonna keep an eye on the clock for me, uh-huh. and you're gonna keep an eye on these on this word count. This is a very important job. You count my words. <laughs> that's all I need you to do. But I need you to do it perfectly. And then it was it was happier. You know, it had something to do. Yeah. And then the other one's like, oh, thank God he's busy. Yeah. Now I can get into it for exactly. real. <laughs> yeah. It's always shutting me down, man. <laughs> I know. I, I feel like I, I like to give those aspects of the mind character traits. Like <laughs> my editor and the critical side, I feel like his name is Ebenezer and he's a hoarder <laughs> and he lives in a studio apartment. And um, whenever my life starts going too well, he starts freaking out because he thinks he's going to have to move out of the studio apartment. Oh, that's really great. (laughs) So I feel like Ebenezer really wants to edit the book, but he's also kind of trying to shut down the book process because he thinks it's threatening his studio apartment life. He's so scared. He's so scared. He's really freaked out. So so I just say, Ebenezer, you're never going to have to move out of the studio apartment. But it would be really helpful if you would keep track of time and the word count. Um, so smart. Yeah. So you can just do that and then you can stay in the studio apartment. And then he's like, <laughs> okay, cool. I'm good. Um, but yeah, if I don't if I don't engage with him, he just completely derails the whole thing. Yeah. 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 No, you have to engage with him. It's like some sometimes like I don't know if I don't know if any of your people. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't know your people, but um, <laughs> I would love to know them. But there are some. I'll speak for my. I'll speak for my writers. Some of some of my writers um, have known from a very young age that they love writing, and then turned it into something like into a practical career, like in business communications or um, even editing, and and over time have just really given their Ebenezer all the power and it's been beneficial to them. Like they've really been rewarded for it. They've been paid for it. They've been congratulated for it. And it really makes things go smoothly. And then, you know, they're like, you know what, this is, I'm, I'm finally ready. I'm finally ready to write. And I know I I can make the time. Um, so they come into a class with me and they have the time and they have the energy and the motivation, but they have not been in touch with the other voice for so long that they can, can't even really hear it. Like they don't, like they're, they're, they're Scrooge like character. <laughs> and it was like, although, you know, I, like in their lives, maybe it's even unfair to say Scrooge. Cause it might not even be that. I don't know. Like it's been, 
it's been good to them, you know, it's been, or it's been really helpful and it's been really helpful in business communication. It's been really helpful in editing other people's work, but they just haven't, they haven't known what it's, what their own, um, creative voice even sounds like. So it's very, very, very hard to trust it. Like the, the way we've been talking and the way I've, I've been talking about writing this book, like I know what it feels like and it's a very sweet voice. My creative voice, I, I it doesn't, you know, it's really quiet, but I know it and I love it and I know that I love the sound of it. And, you know, I might get detached from it or disconnected from it here and there, but when I come back, I'm like, oh, I recognize you and I've missed you. Um, but some people haven't heard that voice for so long that, that what we're at, what I ask them to do in the course or what writing asks them to do is so unfamiliar. It's really, really uncomfortable. Like I have some exercise, you know, some exercises yeah. like, um, there's one where you compare two things like you, you come up with, it's like a word pairing exercise where you take, um, a, an, a word like paper and you have to come up with a word that has absolutely no relation to the word paper, something completely illogical, like completely illogical. And the example I give is trampoline. That was mm-hmm. the one that came up. And then the assignment is right. Compare the two objects. So, that kind of freewheeling, like that sort of just just coming up with a word that has no connection to another word, something that illogical, that step sometimes really, really breaks some really good people. Like there's some breakdowns that, that can happen because what I'm asking, what your writing is asking is to make an illogical leap, to like invent something out, to be really playful, really. Like chair, come up with a word that is completely illogical, connected to chair, like completely disconnected, has Nothing to do with chair. Yeah, Come like up with something. Lobster. <laughs> lobster. Perfect. Okay, now write a metaphor comparing a, a chair to a lobster. Like that breaks people down. Yeah. If, they can't, if, they can't see, if they can't see the joy and the love in it, um, it can be really, really uncomfortable. So there is, some, there is some like good healing work that can be done this way too. But there, it's also really hard. It can be really hard and I, I don't want to gloss over that for some depending on who you're – Who's listening? Because um, if we if we jump around and we're like, this is great, and all we have to do is just make a joke out of Ebenezer, what if you don't hear your other voice? What if there's nothing there? What if it's only Ebenezer? That's really hard. That can be very painful. I think so. And I think I, I'm really resonating with what you're talking about with the writers, because I have seen that as well. And sometimes they don't even get into communications careers. Sometimes they get just shut off completely from writing and sent into another direction entirely, which is valuable. And I think when they come back to it later, it brings all of this experience and rich material. But the thing that strikes me that I've heard multiple times is how easy it is to get that voice shut down by a careless comment or just one person's opinion about Mm -hmm. whether or not writing is a viable way to spend your time. And people saying, you know what, you don't want to do that. Or, oh, you're not, you're not cut out for that. Or just right. story after story of those kinds of experiences. And then feeling like something happens in life that makes them remember, like, life is short. Like, it's not going yeah. on forever. And this, this part of me that has on this back burner, like, maybe someday I'll write. Like, mm-hmm. the time isn't, you know, it's waiting for you to make that choice to do it. And yeah. so something will happen. Sometimes it's a loss. Sometimes it's, you know, whether of a person or of a job or a relationship that just is a, a, like a reminder. 
And just mm-hmm. to have somebody else say, you know what, maybe you could try that. Maybe it's okay. And maybe that person that said to you when you were in school, no, this isn't right for you. Maybe they were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I had so many thoughts when you were speaking about that. I mean, like, cause I see that too. Like so many, one, the one that just came to me is, um, so many writers in my classes had a sibling who was the writer in the family. Oh. So like, oh, she's the writer. Like your sister is the writer and you're the, you know, athlete or right. your sister is the writer and you are the one who's good at math. And, um, and that just takes it completely. Like that's not even, that's like, it's just, huh. but then the other thing is everyone's learned, everyone's taught. I mean, when, when we're lucky, the fortunate ones, everyone learns how to read and write. And so, you know, everyone can write. You're writing emails every day. You're writing, like, you should be able to write. So there's this, like, this conflict, this tension of, I should know how to write already because I know how to write. Like, every, like what's writing? I know how to write. I'm a good writer. But I'm not a good writer. And other people, and for some reason, I'm not a good writer. And just as you say, like, when, when something happens, whether it's just, you know, time, being time, being what it is, coming to an age where you realize, oh, I, if I don't do this now, like when, or if there's a loss or, um, you know, extreme life transition or something that, that, um, when life, you know, presents you (laughs) with an opportunity or demand to reflect or connect, I mean, back to connection, um, writing is, writing is a way writers find a way to connect to source through their writing. And um, sometimes that pull comes a little bit later. And if you've been taught that you, you don't, you're not the one who's permitted for whatever reason or can't for whatever reason or should, but finds it hard and therefore feel like you're not allowed to, because it shouldn't be this hard. If you were meant to write, it shouldn't feel this hard. All of those things get in the way of your connection to source. Like if you were, if you're a writer and that's, it's, that's, a, that's your valid way to connect to source, um, yeah, like there's a lot of tension there. Like you need help. You might need help. Yeah, I think <laughs> Which, so. you know, yeah. Which may be something as simple as trusting your instincts. This yes. is a slightly odd example, but as you were talking about the chair and the lobster and, and the, you know, the trampoline and the paper, but just... I think that we're also taught that there's a right answer and it's Mm. really difficult if people feel like they have to get to the right answer, then they can't enjoy that intermediary. And the weird example (laughs) is that there is this huge dichotomy or like a big philosophical divide in my family. And, um, I studied art history originally and my aunt is an art history professor and my grandmother was a painter. And so there's this part of the family that really loves Rauschenberg's work. And then there's this other part that hates it. And I think the part that hates it is looking at it and is like, I don't understand what I'm supposed to get out of this. Like, I know that I'm supposed to look at it and I'm supposed to have some reaction. And I feel like I'm not able to access that and I can't do it. And the rest of us are like, but it's delicious. And look at that color next to that color. And it's so yummy. And I just want to smear it around. And I don't care. To me, that's not right or wrong. It's just I react. And It, it really highlights for me, I think, people who feel like, okay, I want to write a good story or I want to yeah. write a, a story that's the right, done the right way and the writing is good. And rather than, I just want to enjoy putting these yeah. words down and, and yeah. just see where it goes. Yes. Yes. And it, I mean, it brings us back to process and the part that I'm in love with. It's exactly it, the delicious part, which is just 
being in touch, like just being plugged into the wall or plugged into the flow, <laughs> plugged into the, I'm thinking about a metaphor that um, a friend and I were talking about recently about, um, I was feeling just disconnected and I had all this stuff on the go. Like I have a first draft of the book and we just moved into the barn and, and I just released a new website and, but I'm feeling so disconnected and what the heck, all this stuff is good. And he was like, well, you know, you can have three extension cords um, and they're all plugged to different, you know, power tools. But if the extension cord's not plugged into the wall, you're not going to, you they're not going to go. They're not going to work. <laughs> you need to be connected to sort, you need to be connected to the wall. And that's the piece that I love is like where the plug goes into the wall. Like that's, um, where you're connected to source. And, and, um, oh, I had a train of thought and it was, we were talking about making art and the process. Um, oh, what I was going to say, this is what I was going to say, mm. um, Sometimes on the other side, like there's the feeling disconnected and like not getting it. But then there's the, the other side, like sometimes people come to my classes all about self, all about self-expression, like all about wanting to be in there, but they're still, but they still want to write good stuff, but they, and they're, and they're not yet. And they don't understand why it's not hitting or pinging yet, but it's because they're way too into it, um, in their own heads, but they're, they're disconnected from, for like, lack of like lack of a better word um the empathy of writing or mm. how how all things are how all things are connected like they're so into their self-expression or self-improvement or writing as their therapeutic tool and their voice and um memoir especially like the memoir problem especially like how do you make a memoir how do you write a personal story so that it affects um so it can connect you to other people and connect you to the world. Like, how do you make that connected? And it's one, it's like this pen, there's this spectrum I see where you're completely disconnected from yourself and others, or you're completely self-obsessed and self-absorbed and disconnected from yourself and, uh, and like the true and, and how you are connected to, well, yeah. interconnectedness, let's just say. And both extremes cause this sort of mm, discontent and agitation because both are at the root disconnected know disconnected from what's real and I don't know I don't know what I, I don't know what I don't know what makes it so but I do know that um that that's who I those I, that's who I love to teach that's how I that's what I love to get at <laughs> yeah is <laughs> dismantling that one end or the other yeah it's or, sort help, of, or trying to help dismantle absolutely I mean it's this it's this building a trustworthy relationship to the source of stories it seems yes. like that's the ultimate goal is that yeah it's not about just one story or oh I have to write this one book and then I'm going to check it off I mean I'm sure people have that feeling but I think if you really get into it and you get connected to this source of like wow there's something in there because um, it brings me to this idea of and I feel like I know which side of the debate mm -hmm. you're going to be on based on what we've said already but this kind of disparate notion of people who are kind of pantsers and they write by the right. seat of their pants versus the structured plan the story in advance process. Right. Um, right. I feel like we're on the yeah. pantser side here <laughs> because how can you know in I'm advance? I'm definitely on the pantser side. I know. And I'm definitely on the pantser side. However, mm. um, having tried to start a novel without any outline over the years, like I had a couple of false starts to this book because I thought I'm just a, I'm a tried and true, I go by instinct. Um, 
and fly by the seat of the pants. That's where pantsers comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just, um, and I, and I couldn't keep it. Like I didn't, I needed some structure in order to understand where the story was going and in order to not be exhausted by it. Like I'm not manic enough to keep the writing, to write a full book that way. I'm just, I couldn't do it. And I tried and I got to about 50 pages both times, two false starts, same characters. Um, and got sick and tired of that. And then, and then I was like, well, it's got to be outlining. So then I, I outlined the whole thing and I like got into the beat sheets and started looking at screenwriting and like, talked out plot with story, with story, um, doctors and well, you're a story doctor, <laughs> the other kind of story doctor, you know, like the ones around the table who like, f- like figure out the narrative of a whole TV series before they right. even start filming the writing and, um, and got to the end of that, spent like six months conceptualizing in point form the whole story and never wanted to write the book. So that was my third false start. <laughs> Um, because there was no mystery. And for me, it's really about that connection, like me connecting to the mystery, like what don't I know and what am I writing to figure out? Like how will my writing bring me to what I don't know and how will it illuminate what I don't know that I don't know yet? And how much information, so the balance for me has been about how much information do I need to know? Like what, what tools like do I need in my backpack before I go out on this hike? And it's, Mm. and and for me, that was a really a deeper knowledge of st- of story, of the story form, of like what you know. Yes, what Joseph Campbell is talking about, like that mythic hero's journey, and all the different, like the three act structure. I mean, story structure. There are lots of them out there. There's like save the cat and mm-hmm. uh, like what are they? Like you're in LA, you probably know all of them. Oh my <laughs> lord! Yeah, and then like uh, James McKee, you know, and the whole. Then, and then so there's like this myself, Aristotelian, you know, all of those. Yes, exactly. And fascinating stuff. So like really learning about story. Like I put myself through a deep like um, study, like a year and a half of study, 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 story. Like what do people say about story? Not in order to, to learn a formula, but to learn what people say about story. And all of them are kind of saying the same thing, which once you start learning it, you can't unlearn it. I mean, everyone around us is also when you look at it through that lens, everyone is on this journey. That's going to like life just, even if nothing happens to you, you born, you're born and then you die. <laughs> like if you're on the planet, there is this birth and death. So even if you have the most boring life with absolutely no stories in it whatsoever, there's still going to be an end and then a, re- and a birth and an ending. So looking at that, I, I felt, um, I had some, I learned a lot from the non-pantsers. I learned a lot about outline <laughs> and, and the benefit of having milestone, like mar- markers that I could carry with me to write towards. So I don't think, and the way I look at outlines and the way from what I've read and what I understand, even outliners, like the best ones, the ones who are writing things that people want to read, the ones who are writing things that are still surprising to them are still using a little amount of pants in their outline. <laughs> Like there's still like writing from place to place. They might not know exactly how their character is getting from place to place. They might not still, they still might find the joy of like, oh, she's wearing a yellow dress. You know, I just saw yellow. I'm going to write down this yellow dress. Oh, what's, there's lace on the, on the cap of the sleeve. Okay. Oh, she's got a suntan, but there's like a little mark. Like she was wearing a ring, but she's not anymore. And I can see the suntan. Oh, there's a story there. What's that about? Even, you know, so there's still, there's still images and story and magic or mystery 
or connecting, you know, to where being able to receive an image or a turn of phrase or a line of dialogue, even within the outline. And I think that's the stuff that we want to read is the stuff that we don't know before or the writer doesn't know before she writes it, you know? Yeah. So, so either way, there's got to be some magic. If we're going to turn a page, there has to be some magic to it. Otherwise, it's all just recycled cliches. And I don't know, that's, that's soothing in its own way. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about here. No. Not that kind of it's, it yeah. ends up being so on the nose. I mean, it reminds me, you were talking about Natalie Goldberg earlier. I remember her writing in one of her books about like, okay, I know this character has to drive from this city to this city. And so I'm just going to say, okay, she's got to get to that city, go. And I don't know how yeah. it's going to happen. I don't know if she's going to get yeah. a flat tire or, or what and like meet somebody at the gas station or who knows. But yeah, I think it's about having those landmarks and then... Yeah being willing to kind of swing between them like a trapeze maybe it's super helpful and again it's been in my experience it's been something to give that part of my brain so to give my like I call my by the way I call my uh really logical (laughs) kind of sometimes getting nasty side of the brain pointy cold that's his name (laughs) (laughs) the other side of my brain named him obviously Mm. um but you know it gives pointy cold something to do. It gives like, it's again, a really kind thing to, that I found to get like little treats, little, like you can have a popsicle at this page, at this stage you can have (laughs) here, you can have a bag of chips here (laughs) and here, just get me to this point. Just get me to that point. And then, you know, there's so many surprises along the way um, that delight me while he's not even paying attention because he's just too busy looking at where the next stop is in the outline. Yeah. I think the most important thing for someone listening to know who doesn't have a writing practice now is that when you sit down, I think the terrifying thing, at least for me, sitting down in front of a blank page is thinking I have to come up with something to fill this page. Right. Of course. That's awful. We've all been there. That's not what it's like. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't have to be like that. I mean, the other, the, the upside down to that if you turn that upside down, it's, I get to do anything I want. Mm -hmm. Like it's, um, or I never know. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even that's even, that's even more accurate. Um, yeah, this thought that, and I think, you know, television and movies is, they're, they're really terrible. You know, that montage of, of the writer, sitting down at the typewriter and then the music goes and it's like, <gasps> hmm, duck, 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 and then starts yeah. typing the pages and like, I'm going to make this happen. It's not, um, it never really feels like that to me. I mean, there are moments and they're few and far between that I feel like I sit down and I get caught up in a wave and um, my body and mind are totally in sync and the left and right sides of my brains and my, like my, my belly brain and my head brain or how, whatever, whatever neuroscience you want to use, um, all feel in sync. And, and I feel like I'm creating something and it's being created through me. All that happens at once. That's like so rare. That has happened so rarely. It does occasionally happen. Um, but not for an extended period of time. Never. I don't think I've ever had that two days in a row in my life. Mm. And it's just not what, I mean, it's just not what it feels like. It's awesome if it happens. If it happens to you, it's awesome. And it's like such a gift. It's like a dream of flying. You know, I haven't had a flying dream since I was a child, but like I'm still holding out for one day. I might have <laughs> it's kind of like that. Like it's not what, what I do this for. What I do this for is like 
I love writing because uh, the challenge of um, being able to explore what it feels like to to receive an image and then the challenge and the honor it is to like receive the image you know it's like like through a frequency i mean i really the radio like trying to tune in and see it and get the frequency loud or clear enough from the source of it whatever that is question big question mark and like it's such an honor it feels like such an honor and a pleasure um to write it down as accurately as I can using language, which is awesome. I mean, language is this this beautiful set of tools that we have that that magically makes something that doesn't exist exist in someone else's mind. It has like it controls your mind. Language, like it, <laughs> you say yellow, or you write, or you read yellow, and you see a color, and that's 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 pretty magnificent. So, the honor of being able to like receive something from the source of images get the image down try to use language as accurately as possible to to get it down so that it can transmit that same source to someone else who reads it or to me when i read it another time or to my friend if if i'm just going to write something that in a letter to a friend to, so that she understands it the way i understood it that in itself is the dance like that's the thing that's the source of enjoyment and it's very much related to language. Like writers love sentences and words. <laughs> um, and it's really like those are our tools. That's our kit. That's our, those are our paintbrushes. And, um, and I love words. I love, what they, I love how they sound. I love what they do. It's like they're so weird. We think like they're so not power. They're so nothing at all. And they're so everything at the same time. Mm. We get to make magic with them. And, you know, the pressure of sitting down at a blank page and thinking I have to make something up is so um, far from the joy of what writing is that uh, yeah I would just I would just encourage if any of your if anyone listening to this is is battling that like to to um, to back away <laughs> like step step away from that clear that and just you know. If you ever feel that way, the next time you feel that way, just know you went down the wrong path and just back up until it felt fun again and, and try another path because that, that, that isn't how it should feel. And we all kind of get to that. We all eventually get there because our habits in the rest of life definitely lead us there. I mean, washing dishes comes from that place, generally <laughs> speaking. Shoveling snow, generally, well, in California, I don't know what, um, sweeping up sand, also, <laughs> it feels like that, but, um, but writing shouldn't feel that way. Writing should feel like you are, um, you're meeting the unknown and you don't know what's going to happen. And let's also be real about it. Like I know the stakes feel really, really high, but if you write yellow and really it was supposed to be, it's closer to orange or yellow orange, no one's hurt. Like no one's <laughs> going to, nothing is going to happen if you do it wrong. Nothing is going to happen if you do it wrong. So, you know, just reminding yourself of that too, like you're totally safe. <laughs> Every, everything's fine. I know the heartbeat, like I have been there where it feels like, oh my God, if I don't, if I don't write, like I'm not a valued valuable human being like I've been there but it's so not true nothing is going to happen so it should 
really be about um, not knowing what's going to happen and then feeling a little bit more comfortable at first with not knowing what's going to happen. And then once you get a little bit more practiced, having fun with not knowing what's going to happen. And then when you get and then when you get a little bit more practiced or you do that for a few weeks at a time, it gets from having fun to not knowing what's going to happen to like really really feeling like it goes past fun and going into that deep play place where you are just like you're deep in the cave and you are picking up breadcrumbs from who knows what and it's not even fun anymore it's just like a quest <laughs> because those breadcrumbs obviously are starting to connect to something. It's a trail. Like you've written yellow dress and then, you know, in the next scene there are buttercups and then in the next scene, um, you know, there's some kind of yellow reflection in a mirror that, that is mysterious and hovering just there and you don't know why. And then you realize, you know, three months later when you allow yourself to reread the things that you've just written, that you've written something yellow in every scene and you don't know what that's about. So better keep writing because will yellow come up again? Who knows? And then that, that becomes, that becomes, um, then you're in, you know, then you're, then you're connected to something real that you don't understand, but it wouldn't be happening without you writing it. And you know that, and that's where you start to feel like it's an honor that yellow picked you. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's such a good point because I think the the purpose is to think about writing almost as like listening and transcribing as opposed to like forcing it out onto the page. Like I have to make this world up. It's more like to me, I think the thing that I loved and, and connected to through the process of the course was, you know, it's about getting curious and doing little writing exercises that you think to yourself, oh, this is just a practice session. I don't have to worry about it, which is great because it takes the pressure off. And then you're like, fine, I'll just do this little prompt about the lobster in the chair and see what happens. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, my God, there's this girl sitting in the chair named Christine, and, and she feels mm-hmm. trapped in her lobster shoes, and she doesn't know what she's going to do with her life. And you're like, well, well, now I'm invested in Christine. Like, yeah, I got to yeah. keep going with Christine. And I thought I was just doing an exercise about a chair and a lobster and, and look who showed up. And totally. And then so to me, it's I think it, I don't want to dismantle or dishonor the process of writing by saying it's a passive process because it absolutely is not like you have to sit down in the chair. But there is a receiving component that I think is important to remember. And, that, and that's the active part. Yeah, it's true. It's like active that's receiving. Active receiving. Well, it's ex- have you ever like been exhausted after doing that? Like Oh, yeah. Like sometimes I can go for long times editing. I can go for like a a full day and like forget, like have to set timers for myself to make sure that I get up and stretch and eat and stuff, but I can like lock in and when I'm when I'm editing text or working on the surface of a manuscript and not receiving too much, but just correcting and editing and fixing. I don't, I have longevity. I can marathon it. But when I'm in the chair receiving, I have like, after two hours, I need to, I'm exhausted. Like it's just, it's hard work. It's very active, but it appears passive because you're not forcing it in the way you think. Yeah. But, but receiving is diligent. There's a diligence to it that, it's just a different kind of activity. It's tuning in. It's listening, active listening. Yeah. yeah. 
it's like listening to something that's maybe a little faint and it's maybe in a language yeah. that you don't speak fluently. Yeah. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, okay, um, okay, I think I remember what that word means. Okay, yeah. I think I got it. Okay, I'm going to write this down. Okay, it might be wrong, but I'm going to go. And then you're doing that. Yeah. It's like it's like having a conversation in a foreign language for several hours. And you're like, whoo, yeah. okay, I understood it. But yeah. maybe I didn't translate that quite right. And maybe I, I'm going to go back and look at it later. Very much. And I think that, that translators, I mean, it's it's a great metaphor, but also literally, I think that's what translation is like. Yeah. Like I think I think um people who are translating fiction or poetry or like working in translation, that is that is how they, they are like tuning into it's it's been described to me this way. Um Peter Levitt, who's actually one of our teachers, he teaches special courses sometimes with the school, um, ha- teaches translation and he teaches revision as translation, um, which which is where I learned it, which I find so fascinating. But I he's love it. Yeah, he describes it as you're you're tuning into source. So you look at a poem in another language and then you connect to the source of it that exists without language entirely. And then you try to not translate from the Chinese into English, but you try to access the source through the Chinese original or the or you know German or whatever whatever language you're translating from. In, you try to access that source that exists without language and then bring it directly from that source into English. So, you, so you're not trying to translate it from language to language. You're trying to access the source through the original language and then bring it back out into English. And when you're looking at your own work and revising your own work, you're looking at it accessing the source of what that image or scene or story was and then rewrite it. Mm. directly from source using that as a goalpost using those milestones but you're not working from the surface of your text to create another text or else you'll just it'll be like you know like taping a tape or taping a cd and then taping a tape and taping a tape. It's, it's like it's not it's like carbon copies it's not good it's you want to get access as close to source as possible using that first draft or the original as just your pointers to, to see, like, what was the source trying to say to you before? Can you get there any better or any more accurately using language the second time? Um, so even revision should be active listening or deep, deeply noticing. Deep noticing is another way to, de- like, deep noticing is another way I describe it. Even if you're writing a first draft in this case, I, I tell my students, like, look at, if you're looking at a scene, if you're looking at that bowl of lemons, <laughs> and you want to describe a, a bowl of lemons, look at the bowl of lemons as deeply as you need to so that you remember everything about it three years from now. Mm. That's like, let it into your body. Then write about it. So don't skirt over it. Don't be like bowl of lemons. Because what would happen is, I think this is a, this is a, this is a painter trick. This is a drawing trick. Because mm-hmm. um, if you draw what you think you see, Right, like the blind, like the the. You know, are you familiar with the blind contour? Mm-hmm. Art? Yep. Yeah, like if you draw what you think you see, you're going to draw your idea of what a bowl of lemons looks like. But if you actually like stop thinking about bowl of lemons, but actually let the bowl of lemons into your body, and then let your pencil trace those lemons without even looking at the page, even you'll get closer to the accuracy. Like a true line will be more accurately drawn, even though it might not look anything like 
the bowl of lemons, it will be, it will evoke the bowl of lemons in a more emotional, emotionally true way because it comes from you. And I, and I try to teach my writers that same thing where it's like, let something into your body. If it's there in front of you and you want to write nonfiction, let the thing that you see come into you so that you would remember it three years from now. And if it's something that you're channeling in from a source that doesn't exist and you're making it up, like if it's the color of a creature's skin that doesn't live on planet Earth, if you're writing science fiction, mm-hmm. you know, let that color seep into your body so that you know it from an embodied place and you would be able to call it up again three years from now in your mind. Then you can write it. That's the deep noticing factor. Also very active. Yeah, <laughs> really active yeah, that work. is not passive. I mean, not passive. maybe the monster kind of, or the creature flickers in your head and you're like, oh, that's sort of the passive. It's like, it's in there. You don't know where it came from. But the part of getting that down and really making that happen on the page, that's super active. It's like a letting it in kind of feeling, which is so different than um, how we live most of the time during the day to day. Yeah. If we let stuff in that way all the time, we'd be moving a lot more slowly, I think. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <have> to. <laughs> I almost think um, this was how um, people who have autism spectrum disorders was described to me. And I remember reading you know, Mark Haddon's book about Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, that there is an inability to filter everything. That, mm. you know, for most of us going through the day, it's like, okay, I, I there's, I, you know, a hundred times you drive down a street, you're like, was that mural there before? And it's like, yeah, it's been there for five years, but it just <laughs> wasn't part of your presence. But for them, it's like, everything is there all the time, which is why it's so overwhelming. Um, but if we can selectively go into that mode and then do that for the length of a draft and then go back and revise and think, okay, did I really get it? Mm-hmm. That that's... I mean, this comes back to practice because yeah. if you're, if you're not on, on the spectrum and, and feel like that, like can't turn it on or off and, you know, are overstimulated all the time, um, you know, the tendency I think is to numb out a little bit more mm-hmm. so that, so that doesn't, and there's just no space and time. Like it, it takes, uh, it takes the rest of us or most of us a lot of, a lot of white space in order to, in order to tune those tuners so that you can be on the receiving end of all the details. And for me, I mean, living and working online, it really does work beautifully for me. Like I love chunking out my time. I love going away to write and getting, and, and having, the ability to go really deep so that I can, you know, what it's like, it's like dilating your pupils kind of, (laughs) (laughs) so you can just take it all in. But if you don't have that, um, and like, it's not realistic for you to take two or three weeks off this year to, to go deep with that, then it's practice. It's take, it's, it's carving something else out in a, in a workshop, in a class or with a teacher or just with yourself and with a daily practice of even 10 minutes a day. So you can do that, do dilate your pupils for 10 minutes a day so that your, so that your, your writing pupils understand what it feels like to turn it on and off. And your, your nervous system can relax long enough. Cause I honestly like putting your seat, like sitting down in at your desk, if you haven't been doing it for a long time or years or, um, have never done it even, it can be quite, it can create some anxiety just to sit down and do nothing, especially then you're like, oh, well, I have to, you know, 
<laughs> I have to back to that. I have to make something happen on this blank page. Anxiety, 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 like red, 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 seeing red everywhere. Even just sitting in the desk feel can feel a little bit panicky because shouldn't you be doing something? And it's just such a, it's such a different channel. Like your, your nervous system, your psychosomatic nervous system is like going to be feeling different when you're, when you're writing this way, deep noticing like you'll be breathing more deeply. It's phys- it's physical. It's physiologically different. You'll be breathing more deeply. Maybe your pupils will dilate more. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it would. I wouldn't be surprised. Like there's there is something. Your blood pressure will slow down. Like things change in your body when you are um, making art. So uh, at first, I think just spending ten minutes sitting and doing nothing, nothing, like not meditating, not writing, not doing anything. Just like just sitting and doing nothing would be good training for a writer. And then, you know, after a few days of that, then, then practicing with um, handwriting and your notebook and, you know, trying some, daily, trying some prompts, trying some writing exercises or writing with a timer or writing for two pages. Um, but calming your body down is part of it is not to be overlooked. Like I, I would not, I, I, I would, I would just like to, put that out there that um, it's not going to feel all soothing and great. It might feel like anxiety at first. And that's probably really normal if you don't have a practice. And what the practice does is it reminds you, (laughs) it reminds your body and mind what it feels like to be sitting down and writing. Uh, So the anxiety doesn't get in the way when you sit down and do your work. It's a habit. Yeah. And I think that the thing this it's also putting in place structures and containment that helps you deal with it, which, which brings me to wanting to talk about your class a little bit so that people know where they can get more guidance because I found it tremendously helpful. I've found it tremendously helpful to be in a class situation of some kind in order to feel comfortable enough because I know that the person teaching at least trusts that this process works, even if I don't trust that it works for myself. Um, yeah, you know, having someone who's a little bit ahead of you or a lot ahead of you, depending on who you're working with is a way to kind of give up this fear that nothing is going to happen. Yeah. You can surrender a little bit. Um, because they know, I mean, at the end of, at the end of the story course and the story intensive, you'll have a first draft written. Um, everyone does. (laughs) No one graduates without writing a, a short story of some kind. Um, and Right up until sometimes the last lesson, some writers don't see how that is possible <laughs> um, because it's not logical. It doesn't happen in a logical way. This is like this is not a lot. This is this isn't this isn't about logical. This is about embracing something a little bit more from the rational side. So having someone, I mean, it's really really easy. It's really easy to give up, and it's really easy to um, tell yourself that you're not doing it right because you can't see how it's going to happen at the end. And what having a structure and having someone there holding the space for you does is allows you to surrender that fear and it gives you someone to like ostensibly blame if it doesn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and it just like, you know, depending on where, depending on where you fall on the, uh, on that, on that where your pendulum is swinging, like I can do this or I can't do this, depending on where you are on that arc, it just sort of gives, it gives it to someone else to hold so that you can focus on just doing what 
she says. <laughs> yeah. Right? Exactly. Which is manageable. Non- nothing that the course asks you to do is impossible. It's only impossible if you if you look ahead and think, how am I going to do that? Like it's, none of the actual step-by-step things are impossible. They're all very manageable tasks. It's, it only, there's just some – there's room for magic in it. Um, there's a lot of room for magic and when you connect to that place. With a, the other thing about having a structure uh, that's, that, that I have noticed around my living room, my dining room table when I've been teaching in person and online when I started teaching online is something – really magical happens when a few people get together to do it together. Mm. Like um, even when they're all around the world and they're working in different time zones, when they're all trying to do the same thing, when they're all trying to connect to source at the same time, it becomes more real. Um, And I don't know what that's about. That's a big question mark for me. I have no idea. I'm not even going to go there. All I know is that I know for sure it happens. And it might just be that we're like kind of tribal animals at our heart and we and we like doing things together, <laughs> even solitary writers maybe. I don't know what it is. I'm not even going to – who knows what it is. But uh, inarguably, it helps having five or six other people doing the same exercises with you, um, struggling with the same things, fearing the same – having the same fears, fearing the same fears, um, and then showing up with each other resurfacing like going underwater together and then resurfacing and showing up together with you know whatever you've grabbed from the bottom of the ocean to show it helps a lot having other people there doing it with you even just knowing that they're out there doing it with you so that um it just makes it more possible and more real and over and over graduates have said that that like it's that that Sometimes, sometimes the connection lasts past the class, which is also really lovely, but also not the point. The point is just that knowing that someone else is doing it along with you and that someone is holding the space who's done it so many times that she knows that no matter what you think about it being impossible, it always turns out possible, helps enormously when you're doing something that you've never done before or that you don't know or maybe you've tried to do on your own and and um, and haven't and haven't gotten there or doesn't or whatever that means whatever getting there means just if there's been any loneliness or uh, frustration or numbness associated with your writing practice or it really helps to have a structure and the people it really does yeah definitely and so we'll have a link to the course in the show notes because you're going to have um, registration happening shortly after this air uh this episode is posted and there's a couple ways to do the class I have done all of them so um (laughs) I can speak to that experience there is you can just take the course on your own um there's a way to just do the course and then there's which is the story course and then there is the story intensive which is you can do it with a TA and you're in a group and you have other people and you're sharing work and you have really active community if you just do the story course um, there is sort of a Facebook group and a way to connect with people, but there isn't a schedule. So right. the same way there is with the story intensive. And I found right. I started with the story course and it was really great. And the prompts were beautiful. And I did like three lessons and then <laughs> life got busy. And then I was just like, Oh, I love that class. And then I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna have to do the intensive because it held me accountable. And I knew I had to post my work and I was going to look 
sloppy and irresponsible, which Virgos hate, you know, I was like, I gotta do, I gotta show up, I gotta post my work, you know, so that really helped me. But I think, you know, people could go either way in terms of what feels like it fits your life. Either way, you're going to get structure and you're going to get support. It's, it's, we do it once a year. Um, so it starts in September. So registration happens in, in August. Um, and we do it once a year. So it's, it's a once in a year opportunity, but also it's a once every year opportunity. So what, um, some people do is try the story course on their own, often get to about lesson three on their own, <laughs> love it and then fall off. And I, it's not, it's not life gets busy, but also things, things crank up in the story course around lesson three too. So it's not just life gets busy. It's like things get, things get real. Um, once you hit lesson three, lesson four, things get really real. And I really ask you to like, to go a little bit deeper and to unfasten yourself from <laughs> from the normal fixings of life, let's say. So it really that many people come into the story intensive after having done the story course for a year on their own and getting to about lesson three on their <laughs> own. And then seeing like, yeah, I need I need the accountability. And then it's always there for them. Every September they can come. So um the way you did it is like it's a time honored <laughs> way way of interacting with Stories State of Mind School, so um, I'm really happy that uh, that that this is airing at the time that people can come. It's yeah. really nice. Yeah, yeah. Take advantage of it. It's a beautiful community, and and I really found it. It really was magical in that it really turned up the volume of that little voice that had ideas that wanted to be written. I think that was a really good effect. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm so delighted that we had a chance to have this conversation and that it happened this time of year and that people can benefit from really trusting that voice. And and I just, I'm really delighted that we got to talk today. Me too. It's been so nice talking to you, Caroline. And um, I'm, I'm really pleased. Please, uh, anybody who's listening, you can just also reach out to me um, if you think it's, if you want to talk more about it. I've got some time before the class or next year, whenever you're listening. And, um, I'd be happy to talk you through and to see if this is something that you'd like or not. Yeah, that's awesome. I would definitely take advantage of that. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's a wonderful experience and I know people are going to get so much out of even just what you've said today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I suspect we'll want to have you back again. Okay. Anytime. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks again to Muse Monthly for sponsoring the show. I found them because I was a subscriber, so I definitely encourage you all to check them out. They focus on contemporary adult fiction with an emphasis on literary fiction from debut writers, so it's a wonderful way to find a new book um, because I know everybody loves to read. So check them out, musemonthly.com, and remember the code is SECRET00, all one word, all caps, to get 10% off your subscription. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.